Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. I think the biggest thing is just trying to bring the cost and time to build down, right. which is probably the two most prominent arguments nowadays. I think they are slightly misguided right. in certain ways, but I also see the argument that you know, a utility does not want to put that much investment in a large nuclear power plant and be over budget and delayed and so on. Right. So I, I can understand the, that argument from the utility side. I don't understand that argument when it just comes from regular people because, first of all, too expensive compared to what? Right. Compared to fossil fuels, sure, but we're not accounting for their expertise, right? Precisely, yeah. And comparing to renewables, not really. Yeah. Because People use the levelized cost of energy to talk about how renewables are the cheapest, you know, one of the sources of energy. That wouldn't even be like comparing apples to oranges. That would be like comparing <laughs> apples to filet mignon. <laughs> it's, you know, like two completely different technologies that provide very different benefits. Right. Nuclear power provides something very unique, which is 24-7 clean electricity. All right, Isabel, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It is wonderful to have you. I'm a longtime fan of your work, so fun to uh, get to chat today. I'm so excited to be here, and I'm glad to hear that, and I'm so flattered that you're a longtime fan. <laughs> For folks that maybe aren't familiar, I'd love to jump in and kind of discuss a little bit of your journey to get to where you are today. You're a very prominent person in the nuclear power industry, but your background is definitely perhaps a little bit atypical. So why don't you just give us a little bit of the story of how you got to doing what you're doing? Oh, man, that's a, a long story. I'm going to try to keep it short. <laughs> but I'm originally from Brazil, from a very small town in the south mm. of Brazil, which, just a tangent, it's very different than the Brazil people imagine in their heads. You know, it's like a lot of farmlands and uh, a lot of cattle. So it's a very different image from like Rio de Janeiro, for example. Right. And I came to the U.S. at around the age of 17 to pursue a modeling career. And that's what I did. I still do it occasionally, even though now I'm kind of getting out of mm. it. So that was my main reason for being in the United States. And I, like I said, I did that for a long time. And then I started being getting a little depressed about the state of the world and what I perceived as my lack of contribution to solving our biggest problems. Mm. And my journey really began in 2019 when I saw the Australia and the Amazon fires. Mm. And I just remember feeling just very, and in a very emotional level, that climate change is here, that we're already, you know, seeing all the, the effects of it. And I think that my biggest realization was that I thought people were taking care of it. I thought it was going to be solved. And it didn't seem to be the case anymore. You know, it came to the realization of where are all the adults? Maybe <laughs> there are no adults. Oh my God, maybe I am an adult. <laughs> and, and maybe I should do something about this. Right. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure you felt the same way, but we grew up with climate change, right? Like we grew up hearing about it, but it was almost like this boogeyman of the future that eventually was going to come. Mm. And that for me was my wake up call of, no, this thing is here. And what are you doing about it? Yeah. You're in my timing's pretty similar too, because there were really bad wildfires in California in 2019 as well. And that's where I'm from, yeah. I think for myself and people I grew up with and know from out there that was a pretty big catalyst too and yeah it's interesting it's true what you said like i kind of had the same idea when i was a kid it, this was definitely something that was already on our radar but you kind of hoped that over the course of 10 or 20 years there'd be a lot of progress on it but it really feels like it's taken until 
now for folks to really get serious about it. And so, yeah, I guess like we had to jump in and work on it ourselves too, because no one else is coming to save us. Exactly. And I think it's almost like a coping mechanism as well mm. of just feeling like, oh, at least I'm trying to do something about this. I'm not just sitting mm-hmm. on the sidelines watching this, you know, this thing unfold right in front of me and hoping that somebody will do something. Right. But, you know, I was very aware and I'm still very aware of my <laughs> skills and my limitations as a fashion model. You know, I didn't have a lot of um, scientific skills or sure. I couldn't build um, a nuclear power plant. <laughs> but I knew that my skills were communicating with people and, and having a platform and sharing, you know, visuals, be it videos or images. And I just had this crazy <laughs> idea one day. To become a nuclear energy influencer. Yeah, I love it. Probably the first person in the world to call herself that. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm sure I was the first person. And and the idea is, is kind of meant to elicit a response. Right. Which I think people get slightly annoyed by it or like uh, roll their eyes. But I like that emotional response because it is also a commentary on our current culture, on social media, on influencers. But at the end of the day, as much as people like to roll their eyes at influencers, they still consume the content, right? right? And they, they're learning through them. They're buying products through them. Yeah. So they're actually very influential. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's in the name. Yeah, it, literally in the name. And I started kind of testing that idea. So whenever I took a flight or whenever I was somewhere and, you know, you start small talking with somebody and I would ask, mm. what do you do? Instead of saying I'm a model or whatever, I would say, I'm actually a nuclear energy influencer. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I would have loved to be a fly on the wall for some of those when people are like, well. right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was basically the reaction. It was like, what? <laughs> and but followed by a lot of questions, right. which was really cool. Yeah, that's a sign that it's working. Yeah. And and pretty soon I realized that people just had this somewhat negative reaction to it, but they don't know anything about nuclear power. Mm. Yeah. So all they think they know comes through pop culture, <laughs> through The Simpsons, through movies. Right. It's kind of ingrained in our DNA somehow at this point. And I think it can all honestly be traced back to nuclear weapons mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Yeah. Really impossible to decouple, you know, with the, with the trajectory of science in our universe, it's very impossible to decouple nuclear power from nuclear weapons just from a historical right. standpoint. Yeah. And culturally, it was such a big thing that hung over all of American culture for so long was the Cold War specifically. And that was obviously a lot about nuclear weapons armament. And it just happened to be the point in time when the US was also, you know, on a very different track developing most of its nuclear power plants. So I can see how, unfortunately, to an extent, that kind of conflation happened over time. Right, exactly. And to back up a step, I'd be curious, like, at what point did you decide, because you must have gone through some of your own educational journey around all of this stuff to come to different conclusions than most people are coming to about nuclear power? Like, what did that look look like? How did you first start learning about it? And when did kind of like the light bulb switch on for you where you're like, whoa, this is actually a really important technology if we're going to address climate change? It was a little bit of a parallel story. Mm. So my wake up call really was in 2019 in the sense of, I want to take action on this. Mm-hmm. But my curiosity around nuclear power actually began much earlier, back in 2015, when um, Carolyn Porco, who is a planetary scientist, mm. worked at NASA. She did a lot of the images from the Cassini mission that went around Saturn. She tweeted about molten salt thorium reactors. 
Nice. And she was all about them back then. You know, she was doing podcast episodes on it. Mm. She would often tweet about it. And I was just very curious. First of all, it sounded really cool. Like, what is a molten salt thorium reactor? Yeah, that's got a good good name, kind of like nuclear energy influencer too. It piques the curiosity. Totally. And um, unfortunately, back then, there wasn't a lot of information on the internet that I could consume to understand what a molten salt thorium reactor was. And even to understand that, you have to understand nuclear energy. Right. I didn't do much with that curiosity other than just having that curiosity. And throughout the years, I would ask people about nuclear energy just because I was still with that in my mind. And the responses I got were very similar and shocking in a way, which was, it's pretty good. We need it to solve climate change and people just hate it. So it always came down to a political problem of people not accepting this technology. And that in itself was fascinating to me. How could it be, right, that this technology that people have thought about this for a long time are saying is necessary and is good. How could it be that we perceive it to be so differently? Mm-hmm. So in 2019, you know, when I was depressed and didn't know what to do, I started reading on climate change and climate solutions, mm-hmm. came across nuclear power again, and just started doing a deep dive on nuclear power. And I think that anyone who does that without a lot of preconceptions right. comes out of it as a nuclear power fan. Right. And scratching their heads as to why we still have this reaction as a society to this technology. Yeah, that's definitely been some of my journey too. Coming at it from a pretty blank slate a few years ago, I've definitely ended up pretty firmly in the pro camp, so I can attest to that. Yeah, it's it's fascinating just as a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, and let's walk through a few of the common misconceptions because I know there's a bunch that people get hung up on, but what are some of the ones that you feel like you've encountered the most when you talk to people that are skeptical about nuclear energy or that you spend the most time trying to kind of like persuade people to think differently about in your content and in your influence? One thing that I find interesting to just comment on is that mm. human beings, everyone, all of us, just make our decisions from an emotional standpoint. For sure. And then we try to use rationality to explain why mm. we feel that way, <laughs> which is why there are a lot of points that people bring up about nuclear power, because at the end, they're just uncomfortable with it. Mm-hmm. I think most of it can be, again, be traced back to weapons. Yeah. And so there are a lot of points that people bring up. Obviously, the biggest ones are the accidents. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll say something about nuclear power and somebody will comment, what about Chernobyl? Right. Yeah. Or Fukushima. Or Fukushima. And that's, of course, would be like me talking about cruise ships and somebody saying, what about the Titanic? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Good analogy. Yeah. Yeah. These things fail. Technology fails, but everything exists within a context. Right. And if you compare nuclear power to other forms of electricity production, it is one of the safest ones. It's comparable to renewable energy. Yeah, I mean, even if you take the accidents into account, I still think probably like, I don't know the exact stat, but more people have died just like mining coal probably, you know, over the years than than in nuclear power accidents. And that's just like the mining, not even air pollution and all that stuff. Yeah, just if you account for the air pollution, obviously it's a ridiculously higher number. Yeah. Yeah, it is significantly safer than, than fossil fuels and it's comparable to renewables. A lot of people don't know that the biggest, the most tragic energy accident in the history of humanity was not Chernobyl. It was actually the Bankiao Dam in China mm. in the 70s. Got it, yeah. This dam collapsed and then caused a bunch of other dams to, to also collapse and floodings and starvation. Right. 
And anywhere from 25,000 to 200,000 people died. Jeez, yeah. I that wasn't even really on my radar, so it's helpful to know. It's not. Yeah, there are no <laughs> HBO shows about it. You yeah, know? <laughs> good point. There's no, there probably should be. People would watch it, but yeah, it's a good point. Yes, exactly. Well, I just feel like the whole, you know, Chernobyl was more just interesting because of all the politics yeah. as that surrounded it and the secrecy. But yeah, you know, Chernobyl was a terrible, tragic accident that we wish didn't happen, but it was, you know, not the largest energy accident that we've had so far. Right. And it's like, we've got 40 more years of reactor design. Obviously, there's a lot of older reactors still present in the world, but in terms of like new reactors being built, uh, they certainly look pretty different. I've learned from some of the things that went wrong. Yeah, exactly. So every time there is an accident, nuclear power plants around the world actually upgrade their safety mechanisms. So like after Fukushima, also a lot of people don't know this, but Fukushima, uh, the meltdown at the uh, Fukushima Daiichi plant was not caused by the earthquake. It was caused by Nami. Yeah, exactly. And by like a failure in the actual kind of like, it was less about the reactor and more like the backup power generation for cooling. Yeah. This, so the tsunami inundated the lower level, which is where all the diesel generators were that were going to provide the backup cooling. And the reason for that is that the seawall was too low. Right. Which also, there was another nuclear power plant that was closer to the epicenter of the earthquake, was also hit by a tsunami of the same size, mm-hmm. but nothing happened because the seawall was higher. Interesting, yeah. And so after, after that, all the nuclear power plants around the world changed their diesel generators, uh, the location of it, something like that wouldn't happen. And they have basically more power to provide backup cooling for a longer period of time as well. Yeah, so it was more of like a siting and kind of like complete plant design issue and less about the reactor itself. Yeah, and the sad part is that TEPCO, which is the the utility that ran that plant, had been warned about their seawall being too low. So it was fortunately like a predictable thing what happened. Right. But yeah, that is a big misconception. Although I do have to say it is, people are coming around to the idea that it's one of the safest forms of energy. Mm, yeah. Um, it takes a little while, but I think that argument is, is I don't see it as much anymore. Yeah, interesting. What are some of the ones that you see more in the present day? Is it more about cost and, and waste and stuff like that or other stuff entirely? Yeah, waste is one of the big ones that is probably an old argument that's still around. Yeah. And waste was, quite honestly, the argument that was harder for me to come around. Interesting. Um, because I kept thinking, you know, but what about this waste? You know, it's it's radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years and, you know, people can die and blah, 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 blah. And now the way I look at it is I wish that we as a society treated every waste that we produce <laughs> like we treat spent nuclear fuel. Yeah. Oh, my God. Because, you know, one of, let's talk about air pollution alone, right? right? Waste fossil fuel plants, literally killing people every year causing climate change, plastic waste in our oceans, getting into our food chain, mm-hmm. disrupting our hormones. Yeah, probably killing us slowly in many different ways that we don't even know about. Exactly. And all different types of waste, e-waste, electronic waste. I mean, I wish that every industry was responsible for getting their waste, <laughs> isolating it and keeping it safe with people with guns. Right. Finding a place for it underground or somewhere. Exactly. And we don't have any account of spent nuclear fuel. I say it that way because it's the, you know, the technical mm-hmm. 
way to say it, and I, and I don't want people to talk about nuclear weapons waste, which is a different way. So totally different, yeah. So I'm just going to talk about spent nuclear fuel. It has never killed anybody or hurt anybody that we know of. So this fear is more of an imaginary fear than the things that are, when compared to the things that are actually happening, becomes minuscule. Right. It's easy for people always latch on to various arguments against certain technologies. And as you said earlier, often it kind of feels more emotional. But it's like, regardless of what technology you're talking about with respect to climate change, like they all have some drawback and often they all have some waste, you know, like I hope and I think a lot of people are working on, you know, how do you recycle wind turbines and solar panels? And I'm sure that we'll make a lot of progress on that, too. But it's like those things have will produce a lot of waste as well. And so it's like nothing's blameless, but you can't get stuck in that thinking. They'll produce more waste. Probably. Yeah. Just because in quantity, because nuclear is so dense. For sure. I talk about this in one of my videos, but if I were to get my whole life's energy from nuclear power, the amount of spent fuel I would leave behind would sit inside of a soda can. Yeah, if you were trying to do it all with solar panels, you'd probably have a pretty big field full of panels up at the end of your life. <laughs> Plus the batteries for backup and so on. And, you know, one of the other ideas or one of the other criticisms is that we don't know what to do with the waste. and That is just not true. Yeah. We have several options. Right. You know, we can cycle. France recycles their waste and reuse it for energy. So over 90% of spent nuclear fuel is actually just potential energy. We can do that. We can leave it in the casks as it is now, which hasn't hurt anybody. Right. Or we can do things like Finland is completing their underground nuclear waste facility, which is basically just like an underground bunker where you put all the nuclear waste and you let it decay. Yeah. And there are other ideas as well, but but there are options. And the truth is like, even if we closed every single nuclear power plant today, we're still going to have nuclear waste. So settling on what those options are and implementing them is going to be necessary no matter what your position in nuclear power is. For sure. Yeah, it's an interesting one when people try to argue that we don't know what to do with the waste because it's like this already... 450, almost 500 reactors operating worldwide. So like clearly there's something happening with the waste already. It's not like it's something that we've just completely ignored up until this date. Yeah, and it's not like we're like throwing it in the ocean or putting it in trees. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, the point you made earlier is, yeah, I mean, people, nuclear of all industries, like probably spends the most time thinking about its waste. You know, other industries just put it in the air, or put it in rivers or stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, there are no regulations around waste disposals for many other, especially the energy generating industries. No, that's a good reframe for me. I hadn't quite thought about it in those terms, but it's definitely true. And I'm curious, you know, you've been nuclear influencing for maybe almost five years now. Do you feel like the landscape or just like global attitude towards it has changed over that time period? Because I feel like it's there's people are like slowly starting to turn the corner a little bit in the last couple of years, but I'm curious for your perspective. Feels like it has changed quite a lot, but I'm in a bubble. <laughs> so I don't know if my perception of the world is, is real in, in regards to nuclear power. Mm. But I do know that support for nuclear power is the highest it's been in decades in the United States. It's I think it's now 55%, so it's a majority of people. Still not as high as the support for renewables, but it does seem to be shifting. And I think there are several reasons for that. I think there is an interest, again, in energy independence after the war in Ukraine. And France, some people might know that France is, you know, one of the biggest uh, nuclear countries. Right. They get around 70% of their electricity from nuclear power. Mm -hmm. 
But the reason why they built all those nuclear power plants back in the 70s wasn't because of climate change. It was because of energy independence. Right. It was during the oil crisis. They went all in on nuclear and they did become energy independent, which was really cool. Yeah. So there's a renewed interest in that. Plus the climate crisis, I think it's putting things into perspective. Mm-hmm. And this just people are having this urgency to phase out of fossil fuels. And nuclear is the second largest source of clean energy in the world. It's been reliable for, you know, over 40 years at this point. Years. Yeah. I think people forget or don't or don't realize sometimes that like, even though we haven't added a ton of net new nuclear power plants in the US, it still generates, you know, more clean power today than solar and wind. Yes. Even though those are like all that everyone wants to talk about. And look, like I think those super important that we develop those resources too. But yeah, like they still haven't caught up. <laughs> yeah. If listen, if we were at 90% clean energy, sure, let's debate what the last 10% are gonna be. But I don't think we have the luxury of debating which clean energy is our favorite one when fossil fuels are still predominant. And I personally think we need all of it not only to replace our current fossil fuel consumption, but also for the future. I think there's no evidence that we're going to slow down or reduce our energy consumption. Quite the opposite. (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely going to grow, if anything, especially when people want to start adding a bunch of EVs and charging those with grid-connected electricity. The demand is definitely going to grow. I know that you did some very specific activism around, I mean, I think one of the things that's most questionable or problematic is when there's already existing nuclear power plants that provide a lot of clean electricity and then people want to close them. And so an example of that is there's still a lot of continuing discussion in California at the last nuclear power plant that's still operating at Diablo Canyon. But let's talk about that a little bit because I know that in the past you had some pretty specific activism around that and kind of were able to draw a lot of attention to that issue. So when I started doing my influencing... I started looking at all the nuclear power plants in the United States that were at risk of shutting down prematurely. And at the time, there were five. There was Indian Point in New York, which did end up being closed. Right. And of course, we now have the data on that. It was fully replaced by natural gas. Yeah. And the next one, the next big one was Diablo Canyon, which became very interesting to me because California is a leader in the climate movement. It is a leader in industry in general, in like technology. Like the fifth biggest economy in the world, just on its own. Exactly. Plus, it is a very symbolic plant Mm -hmm. because it was kind of the birth of the anti-nuclear power movement in the United States. You know, when Diablo Canyon was about to start operating, there were huge protests. I think it was like something like 30,000 people were protesting. Wow, yeah outside of it, which is gigantic, and people were arrested. It just became this cultural symbol of the anti-nuclear power movement. So for me, the idea of overturning that became very compelling as a way to show people that sentiment is changing. And of course, it was also the dumbest idea on planet Earth to close that (laughs) that fully operating nuclear power plant that provides enough power to 3 million Californians. Right. Yeah, it's a big plant, like 2 gigawatt power plant. Yeah, it's a big plant. It employs like 1,500 people with, you know, high paying, stable jobs. And California is in the energy crisis. It's been in an energy crisis. So the idea of closing that plant down when we don't really have good alternatives just seemed absurd. And, you know, on top of that, San Onofre in California also um, shut down Mm -hmm. a couple of years ago. And it was the same story as 
Indian point. It was fully replaced by fossil fuels. So that just became very compelling to me. And I started reaching out to a lot of nuclear advocates, and they were all very jaded on Diablo Canyon. <laughs> Everyone said, that's kind of a hard one. Right. You know, a lot of people have died on that hill. Yeah. You know, it's just, I think it's impossible. It's, it's a done deal. But I was looking at, you know, obviously the energy crisis, obviously the fact that more people are concerned with climate change after the fires and so on. Mm -hmm. And the the electric vehicle mandate, which you mentioned, plus the clean electricity mandate. So you have these two mandates that are basically requiring more clean electricity, not less. Right. And if even if you were to replace all of the Canyon's output with renewables, you'd still not be taking any fossil fuels out of Right. Yeah, you'd just be treading water at that point. Yeah, you're just on a treadmill. And it's just not really a wise decision in my opinion. Yeah. So yeah, I started I started doing some work there, collaborating with some other activists who had not given up. <laughs> and we did this whole campaign around it. And some of the things we did was write a letter to Governor Newsom mm. that was signed by 80 of the leading scientists and entrepreneurs mm. and energy experts in the country, urging him to reconsider this decision. We also did a rally in San Luis Obispo, which is where Diablo Canyon is located. Mm -hmm. And it was the biggest nuclear rally in U.S. history. Yeah, the anti-nuclear ones are a little bigger, unfortunately, but good to <laughs> so, set that milestone. About that. <laughs> <laughs> so that that got some attention as well. And some folks might know in your audience that that decision was overturned and now Diablo Canyon will operate for at least another five years. Quite honestly, I don't see the situation in California being any different in five years. It seems like something we're just going to continue to have to kind of like scrap out every time that it comes up for renewal. There's going to be debate about it. And in my opinion, this shouldn't even be a debate until we're done with fossil fuels. Yeah, I might have to double check, but I think it provides something ludicrous, like almost like seven or eight percent of California's total electricity in any given year. So nine. Yeah, to take a, take that big of a step back when you still have, I don't know, probably approximately 50 percent of this power sector is still natural gas. So yeah, you'd have to build a lot of solar panels and batteries just to be able to replace that like clean and dispatchable capacity. Exactly. And it's unfortunate that the same thing, as you kind of alluded to, is happening in other parts of the country too. I think, you know, Michigan, there's a power plant, Palisades, nuclear power plant that has been closed, but that they're hoping they might be able to reopen. But we'll see no shortage of places to uh, that require more influencing and activism. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Never ends. And you probably have more. I focus a lot on the U.S. And, and Europe. I mean, I try to cast a global eye on my my coverage too. But you probably have a better perspective on what other stuff is happening globally for in the nuclear power sector. I guess let's talk about like what are some good things that you're seeing, whether in the U.S. or in other countries. Like, where are some areas that there's good news to uh, to share with folks that you try to get people excited about? So one good news is China is planning on building 150 reactors next decade, which is very ambitious. Right. Or in the next 15 years, or something like, still very ambitious. Yeah, that'd be like a third of all the, like building an additional 30% of all the like reactors that are currently in the world. So that would be quite impressive. Hopefully they can do it. Yeah. And I think there's a combination of large and small reactors yeah. there. So I don't know if the electrical output is necessarily the same, right. but still just building that many is very impressive. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they have that as a goal is, I think, inspiring. Right. Then Russia is also pretty bullish on nuclear power. <laughs> they export a lot of their nuclear power to other countries. So they partner with a lot of 
countries to build nuclear power plants for them. Mm. The UAE recently opened their nuclear power plant, which now provides something like 25% of their country's electricity, which is both. That's an interesting one, too, because it's such an oil-rich nation and it would be easy for them to use oil and gas. I mean, it would be very cheap for them to use oil and gas exclusively for their power sector, but it's cool that they kind of also have an eye towards the future and want to participate in nuclear power as well. I'm sure they're aware that we are going to phase out of fossil fuels. Right, so they're trying someday. Exactly, someday. Yeah, I think that's going to take longer, unfortunately, than what we would like. We'd be able to accelerate it if we started building more, more reactors, that's for sure. <laughs> that's the goal. No, absolutely. But you still have to think about the developing world. And I'm very torn on this because I do think that they have the right to develop. Totally. <laughs> yeah, there's like 600 million people in Africa that don't have access to electricity at all. So... Yeah, and in Asia as well. But yeah, it's like around 600 million people in the world that just don't have any electricity. That's insane. Yeah, I don't think any of us can understand what a day without electricity looks like. Yeah, I mean, every part of our day is like phone, computer. Even if you're burning like some charger somewhere, right. you know? yeah. So that is exciting. Poland is also planning on going big on nuclear power. They're mostly coal. So Poland has one of the dirtiest electricities in the world. They're going to build nuclear power plants and the United States, I think, is turning around. Yeah. Another one is France. France was oddly had set this goal to reduce their nuclear power to 50% of the country's electricity for whatever reason, probably being influenced by Germany. Right. But now they've come around and said, no, we're actually going to build more nuclear power plants and keep the ones we have open as long as they're you know, yeah. safely operating. And of course, the United States, we have Vogel that's hopefully going to start making electricity later this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a couple more reactors coming online there. Yeah, and hopefully we'll invest pretty heavily on small modular reactors or advanced nuclear. People call it different things, but it's basically smaller plants that are that have newer design. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of focus on that now and a decent amount of both public sector support and like see private like startups trying to get into the small modular reactor world, raising a lot of money to make that feasible. What about that excites you the most? Do you think it's like the actual kind of like technical component that will be a big unlock? Or do you think it's also, I mean, the answer can be both, but to me, it also seems like an opportunity to like reset some of the narrative around nuclear power plants, because when people look at such a big old plant, they kind of think a certain thing and all the things that they already believe about that. But maybe with some of these new reactor designs and new companies, there'll be a good opportunity to reset that. It's probably all of the above. I think the biggest thing is just trying to bring the cost and time to build down, right. which is probably the two most prominent arguments nowadays. I think they are slightly misguided right. in certain ways, but I also see the argument that you know a utility does not want to put that much investment in a large nuclear power plant and be over budget and delayed and so on. Right. So I, I can understand the, that argument from the utility side. I don't understand that argument when it just comes from regular people because, first of all, too expensive compared to what? Right. Compared to fossil fuels, sure, but we're not accounting for their externalities, right? Precisely, yeah. And comparing to renewables, not really. Yeah. Because people use the levelized cost of energy to talk about how renewables are the cheapest, you know, one of the sources of energy. That wouldn't even be like comparing apples to oranges, that would be like comparing <laughs> apples to filet mignon. <laughs> it's, you know, like two completely different technologies that provide very different benefits. Right. Nuclear power provides something very unique, which is 24-7 clean, 
clean electricity. The value of that in, in the grid now is invaluable. Yeah. And there is a new, you know, levelized cost of energy chart that came out recently where they account for that. So if they were to to add the cost of backing the renewables to make them more like nuclear. Yeah, more 24-7. More 24-7. They would cost about the same, about the same as Vogel, which is, you know, over budget. Yeah, the cost thing is very challenging because I think, I mean, it's just very difficult to, it's like, what value do, do you assign to different hours of electricity, for example, or, or availability? It's like if you have a lot of solar production during the day when there isn't even necessarily that much demand on the grid, like that's valuable to an extent for sure, because there is still some demand and you would have to burn gas for that otherwise. But if you then don't have that power available in the evening when everyone comes home from work and wants to charge their car and run the dishwasher and all that stuff, like, yeah, trying to make comparisons between that. It's ultimately a pretty difficult academic exercise. And I mean, it's not something that I claim to know how to do perfectly either, but when people just dismiss nuclear as too expensive purely from some of those like academic exercises, like, okay, well, it's probably not quite that simple. Yeah, at the end of the day, like, it doesn't matter how many spreadsheets and charts and whatever, people just want to come home and turn on their AC and turn on the lights and watch TV and charge their car. Right. They want electricity when they want electricity, period. And that's why something like nuclear is so valuable, obviously. Right. And then the time to build, you know, on average, nowadays, plant takes eight years. Some have taken five and some outliers have taken 10. But on average, it's eight years. Yeah. Now, you can say that's too long. But, you know, for a plant that might operate for 80 years, providing 24-7 clean electricity, I don't think that's long at all. Right. I mean, we're going to be around as a species, hopefully, for a long time. Yeah. It's probably more of a cultural indictment where, you know, we're just not as patient as we once were. I feel like we always want everything now, you know, it's like, okay, we can, what can we build now that's going to do something in six months or a year, but it's harder for folks to have the longer term vision. Somehow we used to be better at building like long-term infrastructure in the U.S., but we need to get good at that again. <laughs> well, and that's one of the reasons why small modular reactors are attractive as well, because you're manufacturing those, you know, you're putting them in factories, maybe you have some construction, but it's minor compared to the large reactors. Mm -hmm. And we have, like you said, in the United States, we have become worse at building large things. And nuclear is just one part of it, right. of many things. But it's like, we got to get good at building a lot of infrastructure, almost regardless of what path we take. Because like, even if people want to build a massive amount more renewable energy and aren't that interested in nuclear, you're going to need to build a ton of transmission lines and manufacture a ton of batteries in this country to be able to provide storage for all of it. So in and of itself, if you're worried about building stuff, like we're going to have to build stuff either way. So <laughs> might as well add this to the mix. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, might as well just add this technology that has proven very mm -hmm. consistent and reliable that is an option that we have. Yeah. And I think the biggest thing that speaks in favor of the cost is there's a lot of countries that have consistently pretty decently priced electricity and they often feature nuclear energy in their mix. So sometimes it's difficult to evaluate like, okay, what's the long-term benefit of this going to be if it's going to cost $20 million up front and take 10 years? But as you said, if it runs for 80 years, like 40 years from now, you might be like, okay, glad we did that. We have all this pretty cheap electricity now. <laughs> Exactly. Pretty cheap electricity and all the other benefits that we talked about. Zooming out a bit, I'm curious, you know, maybe it's within the nuclear energy realm, maybe it's something else related to climate technologies, but, you know, what else excites you or what else are you stoked about today in late May of 2023? What have we not talked about yet that you're excited about? 
aligned in a clear space. I'm excited just because I do feel like the public perception is shifting. Mm -hmm. And I'm very positive that we will be using nuclear energy in our future. Definitely. Crazy not to use this technology that's available to us. So I'm very optimistic about that. I like the developments in in geothermal mm. as well. I think geothermal can play a role. Definitely. And I'm excited that there are companies that are cracking that <laughs> and people are coming on board. I'm also excited about, let's think, I'm excited about lab meat. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure some of you guys are familiar with it, but it's just basically creating meat, actual meat, like real meat right. from an animal cell in a laboratory. Yeah, cell-cultured. Cell-cultured, which, by the way, very energy-intensive as well. Right, that will require a lot of clean energy as well if people want to start making billions of and millions of burgers from it. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but I think it has potential to, you know, at least reduce the amount of animal suffering because we're, we're going to have less animals in, in captivity. Right. But then also from a health perspective, it's probably better, mm. you know, that we're raising this meat in a lab without antibiotics and without some of the cleanliness issue around this race nowadays. Right. So that's exciting. I mean, there's so many exciting things. I, I do feel like we live in a crazy <laughs> technological age, but then some of that is also overshadowed by things like AI. Right. Yeah. Sometimes we get a little. Yeah. I don't fully, I, I, I don't have like a fully formed idea about it. Yeah. I don't know. If I'm scared to that, but a lot of people I respect are, to that so I'm going that direction just by thinking through them yeah and at minimum another example of something that's going to require a lot more electricity so <laughs> exactly and those are those that's what I always say even things like and I'm not this is not me saying that I support cryptocurrencies because mm -hmm. I don't own any and I don't have a, an opinion on sure. it but we make all these models right mm -hmm. we we protect our energy demand in 30 years, sure. who 30 years ago could have predicted <laughs> that we would have invented cryptocurrencies? The whole internet, yeah. I mean, wasn't really or the that, whole internet. that much of a thing 30 years ago. It existed, but I don't think anyone would have guessed that like everyone would use it every day. Exactly. Just the scale of it and just some technologies in general, right? Cryptocurrencies, nobody predicted it 30 years ago. Right. And they use a lot of, of energy. So I think we should always just operate from the principle that we need to live in a in a universe of energy abundance. Mm. And because of the, you know, downside of, of fossil fuels, we have to live in a universe of clean energy abundance. Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course, going back to nuclear, that has to be a part of it. Yeah, that's an important reframe because I think a lot of times we talk about like, okay, like this is the power sector and we have our pie chart of where the energy is coming from and we just want to replace the fossil fuel portion that's 50 or 60% with clean energy. But as we've talked about a number of times now, like the goal should ultimately be do that and then produce like a lot more power as well. It's not just like get to 100%. We want to get 200%, 300%, what, what have you. That's very correlated with just GDP and human prosperity and stuff like that. Yeah. And this, you know, the, the idea of degrowth. Mm, does not excite you. <laughs> well, yeah, that's not what things that don't excite me. Degrowth does not excite me. And I just haven't seen a plan. Yeah. I just haven't seen a plan that tells me what is too much energy, what is enough energy, who gets yeah. to decide who gets to use how much, and what do we do with the people who are using more? Right. Do we address them? 
So my intuition with that is when people talk about degrowth, I think that the goal, even if that's not your goal, I think it ends up being that we keep poor countries poor mm. because we don't want them develop. Yeah. And the wealthy countries keep doing what they're doing. Yeah. It seems like a big risk for more inequality, you know, for sure. Yes. I think it just leads to more inequality. And I just haven't seen, like I said, a good plan. But if anyone has one, I'm actually interested. Like, yeah. please send it my way. <laughs> I grew up, you know, in a country that didn't have the same, and I didn't have the same amount of access to electricity as people in the United States have. Right. And I know what that life looks like. Yeah. You know, it's like being hot in the summer because <laughs> you don't have air conditioner. Right. Yeah. Very different. Being very cold in the winter and not having a laundry machine mm. or a dishwasher. But, you know, still very excited about humans. I think we're pretty cool. <laughs> Optimistic. That's good. Yeah. Me too. Yeah, we do. We do cool things. I mean, the fact that we can harness energy inside of of atoms mm -hmm. and use that to charge our phones is amazing. Right. I'm just a believer that we can solve our problems. We we create a lot of our problems, <laughs> but we can ultimately solve all of them as well. Right. And usually, sometimes it takes us a little bit of time, but once they start getting really acute, pressing, which is happening with climate change right now, we're usually pretty good at like reacting to that once we have to. So hopefully, that's what continues to happen the next few years. Yeah, exactly. I think we'll get out of climate catastrophe, hopefully. But then we're going to have AI catastrophe. <laughs> <laughs> Just, yeah, this then. is like one thing after the other. But that's the thing. That's what it's always going to be. Right. We're never going to live in a state of just bliss and happiness and everything is perfect. <laughs> because even, you know, pre-civilization, that wasn't the case. Yeah. We're very hardwired to like solve problems. So there has to be a problem to solve. <laughs> Exactly. Beautiful. I love it. You know, in, in closing, I also want for folks that are listening in and are interested about what you do, I know that you've been doing a lot of work on kind of your brand and your platform. So, you know, what's next for, for you and for the Isodope brand in the coming six months or year? What are you working on? I'm writing a book. Ah, beautiful. Excited to read it. Why? Yes, I'm, I'm very excited. I'm very excited. It's called Rad Future and obviously about nuclear power. Nice. It very easy to read so everybody can read and you know gift it to their aunts and cousins and all ages everyone that needs persuasion yeah everyone that needs persuasion or just understand more about nuclear power because there are so many cool you know like how many just like fun little facts i brought up yeah. and you had no idea about there's so many of those that are super interesting and i think people like to read them definitely so super excited about that and just putting out more content. We have a pretty cool newsletter now on, through our website that comes out monthly. So if you are somebody who's interested in nuclear power, we just drop the most important headlines and what's happening. Beautiful. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes too. Yeah, thank you. Just growing the audience and spreading the message. Excellent. And I know that you also do a decent amount of, you know, speaking at events and stuff like that worldwide. And I think that's pretty, that's pretty, those are always good opportunities to kind of, I think in person, it's a lot easier for people to build that emotional connection to the way that you talk about it too. For sure. Yeah. In person, I've only had maybe like two mm. people that walked up to me and said something crazy. <laughs> <laughs> over the internet, people can be a little bit. <laughs> oh, over the internet is another. Yeah. Every day there's some like weird comment. But in person, yeah, you can just have a more normal conversation. Mm. But yeah, super excited about all of that. And especially the book, I think it is a big, cool project. Yeah, that's fun. I'm excited to, to read that and yeah, I'm kind of starting to think about like if I wanted to write a book about the things I've learned over the past few years, what that would look like. But I'm a step or two behind you. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, I'll share any notes that I have. Yeah, please do. Thanks so much for joining, Isabel. It's been great. And uh, yeah, look forward to, I don't know, maybe we'll do an in-person event or a panel or something at some point. But uh, for now, I'll let you get on with your book. <laughs> oh yeah, we sh- you should keep me updated of anything that you're going to, because I'd love to join for some of them. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely will. Okay, thanks, Nick. Yeah, appreciate it. Talk to you soon, bye. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.